everybody else, I'd welcome you to turn with me in your copy of God's holy and inerrant word to John chapter 13. We're only looking at a handful of verses this morning because the verses are so profound and so impactful and so important for us to understand, to unpack, and to apply. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 35 this morning. Now, in chapters 13 through 17, what we've seen and what we've been calling it is the upper room discourse, what the church has traditionally called it throughout history, is the upper room discourse. But what begins inside of the upper room discourse in verse 31 through the end of chapter 16 is called the farewell discourse. Inside the upper room moment, when Jesus is in that upper room, that, that second floor room with his disciples, he has a moment or he has a section of his discourse of him speaking and the disciples listening. It's called farewell discourse because he's going to tell them a lot about his departure and what that means for his disciples. He's going to be explaining that. So now Judas has departed. So up until now, they have been in the upper room in all of chapter 13, but now Judas is gone, and so the tone is going to change because the betrayer's out of the room. Jesus isn't going to fixate on Judas anymore, the betrayal anymore. He's going to turn to the 11, and he's going to continue to teach them that they need to be prepared for life after Jesus. Not in the sense that Jesus is now gone because he will promise in Matthew that he's with them to the very end of the age, but his physical presence is going to be gone. And much of this interaction will come, or rather this instruction, will come to us through the 11. Thinking about the question of how are we supposed to live after being saved by Christ and then before seeing him face to face? How then do we live? What's our governing rule? What is the tone of our fellowship? As the people of God, the disciples of Christ, what is it? It could be nothing else but love. That's why we read the passage that we read from 1 Corinthians this morning. The tone of our fellowship, our governing rule as the disciples of Christ, is love. Love for the glorified and risen Christ. Love for those he has chosen and saved as his own. Our text is going to make abundantly clear the rule of love as the primary mark of discipleship to Jesus. They will know that we are Christ by our love. Let me read these verses and then we'll pray. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things from your word this morning. And in this handful of verses, these five verses, we see a new commandment. We see your glory. We see the future, where we're headed. But we also are told how to live before we get there, before we get to glory, before we get to where Jesus is that we cannot yet come, how we are to live. Father, give us eyes to see what is true and biblical love and then what is true and biblical witness to a lost and dying world and how that relates to our love and the love of Christ you have shown to us through him. Use this text to teach and instruct us, to build us up into a more faithful people and glorify yourself by your own word this morning as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In verse 31, it says, when he had gone out, that he is Judas, he's out. When he had gone out, Jesus said, hey, that was the guy, let's talk about this for a long time. No, he said, it's as if the door shuts, 
Judas has exited and Jesus's urgency has just ratcheted up several more notches about what he's going to say and why he's going to say what he's going to say. The urgency increases if you notice in verse 32. It says at once at the end. If you notice in verse 33 it says yet a little while. And in the verse 31 that we're looking at it says now. This is these are urgent words. This is urgent phrasings. Something is happening and it's happening now. The time is short, the, the end is imminent. Jesus has laid aside his troubled spirit. You remember his troubled spirit? In verse 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He's laid that aside. Judas has walked out the door. He chooses now to focus not on his imminent death and the pain that will come with it, but instead he's going to urgently instruct the disciples on the weighty matters of theology, what is true, and life, how we apply what is true. That's what he's choosing to emphasize with these men, these 11, right now. See, the disciples need to know that the betrayal won't lead to humiliation, but to glorification. That's what he says in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, if we take these as standalone, they don't really make a lot of contextual sense. But what has Jesus just been talking about? I'm grieved in my spirit because one of you is going to betray me. Jesus, who is it? It's the guy who dips his, his uh, bread in the bowl with me. What you're going to do, do it quickly. He's talking about all of this betrayal. And the disciples are like, how could this possibly happen? You are the Son of God. How could you be betrayed? And it's real and it's happening. But then Jesus says, as soon as Jesus leaves, all of this is for my glorification not humiliation. So they're going to be upset by the news of this treason, and they already are a bit upset by it. But this betrayal doesn't end in downfall and shame. Instead, it works towards and is integral to glorification and exaltation of God. That's what this is going to end up to, this, this betrayal. Jesus is saying, brothers, don't be upset. What's happening right now is for my glory and the glory of the Father. Know that. As soon as the door shut behind Judas, leaving to sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, we, the disciples and us, are told to eagerly anticipate a fresh expression of the glory of the triune God of creation. That's what we're told to expect. We know the story, right? Judas is going to finally and officially put the nail in the coffin on the betrayal of Christ. And Jesus is saying, what you need to expect right now is glory. That's what you should be expecting. A fresh glorification of me and my Father. Appealing now to the Trinitarian nature of our God. But you think, how will this glorify the Son and the Father? I couldn't think of a better way to say it, so I stole it from J.C. Ryle. He said, here's how the crucifixion, which is what is Judas' betrayal is leading to, here's how it glorifies the Father. The first way is wisdom. That the whole plan of God from the beginning of creation, all of the cosmos, every grain of sand, every air molecule is all working and moving towards one thing, the crucifixion. And that will lead to my ultimate glory. The plan is all coming together. So we see the wisdom of God in planning to be just and the justifier. He's going to totally punish sin, and he's going to forgive sinners. The wisdom of God will be exalted at the crucifixion. Secondly is faithfulness, that God keeps his covenant promises. Adam and Eve sin in the garden, and one of the first things that God says to them is, I'm going to give you grace, and I'm going to bring about an end to all of this. I promise. Genesis 3.15, he does that. Then he reiterates it in Genesis 12 and in 15 and in 17. And then it comes back again in 2 Samuel 7 and then Jeremiah 31. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and then the crucifixion is coming. He's faithfully carrying out his covenant promise to his people. So he's glorified in his faithfulness. Secondly, or thirdly, he's glorified in his holiness. He's fulfilling the, what the law demands. When God is going to send Jesus to die in our place for our sins and grant us forgiveness, he's not going to say, I, I just don't care about the, the law anymore. I'm just going to not, that's just not going to matter to me today. 
I'm going to let it all go. I'm going to turn and look the other way. No, he's going to satisfy the law. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, I did not come to nullify the law, but to fulfill the law. All of it, every single word of it. So his holiness is maintained. And then fourthly, God the Father will be glorified by the crucifixion, by his love, providing a mediator, his own son. His own son. I wouldn't give my son for anyone, anywhere, ever. Yet the God of the universe does with his son for us who are sinners, who hate him. His love is glorified at the cross. And how will this crucifixion then glorify the son? Because Jesus says it's going to glorify me and the father. What glorifies the son by his compassion, the dying, the suffering for our sin. And we always highlight the length of the thorns and the, the sharpness of the shards in the whip on his back and, and the width of the nails and the splinters on the cross and, and all of those things. And those are terrible and those are painful. Those are brutal. But other people have endured that kind of death too. Nobody has endured the fullness of God's wrath poured out the dregs on them alone for all of the sins of the world not just theirs but the whole world's sin so his compassion for us is exemplified in the cross and glorified his patience he doesn't just die a common death he doesn't just come and live and then die at age 77 because he's got shortness of breath and then suffocated and died no he he dies an agonizing death patiently enduring that he's god but he has to go through every minute, every second of the mock trial of the beatings in the palace and then the actual crucifixion. And then lastly, it glorifies the son by his power. He bears the weight of sin and it doesn't crush him. How much power does he have to carry that weight and live through it and conquer it instead? And then go to Satan and vanquish him and rob our souls from him. That is power at the cross for the Son and for the Father. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 32, If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him and in himself and glorify him at once. Now that can be kind of confusing if you're following who is the him and what is what's going on. But he says, if God is glorified in him. So if God the Father is glorified in Jesus the Son. Rather, since God becomes more glorified in the sacrifice of Christ, then God will also make it so that Christ himself is glorified by the same thing. And this glory is not going to be delayed. What does it say in verse 32? At once. We think that, that the cross has no glory, but the empty tomb and the Mount of Ascension, that has glory. But Jesus says the opposite. Those two certainly have glory, but the cross is also itself glory at once. Not delayed, but that moment is glory. Here's how one commentator said it. He said it like this, Father and Son glorify each other. For though they are two persons, they are one in essence. That's just good Trinitarian theology. It says, by means of the passion, resurrection, ascension, and coronation of Christ, God will glorify the Son in intimate union with himself so that the son's glory reflects glory on the father and vice versa here's the best way to think about this verse 32 that may seem confusing but have you ever been in one of those hallways in a hotel or those uh oftentimes elevators in hotels where the whole thing is mirrors and you see the mirror reflecting and reflecting and if you just look at one side of those mirrors you just keep looking into infinity because that mirror is reflecting that mirror and that mirror is reflecting that mirror and it just keeps going on and that reflection is reflecting that reflection and it just keeps going on and on and on and on and on. One mirror, the Father. The other mirror, the Son, reflecting glory upon each other into infinity. That's what Jesus says the cross will be. So fear not that the betrayer has left and that this moment is coming hours away. It's only going to be for my glory and for the glory of the Father. You have no need to fear. This is the divine irony of redemption that we've got to stop and think about. When Satan, when Judas believed what they believed would be the most embarrassing, humiliating, stagnating, destructive, 
regrettable or shameful or devastating act that the cross could be, what does it actually turn out to be? Instead, it's by the sovereign, hand, sovereign mind and providential hand of God, the cross will bring instant glory to the Father and the Son. Satan's best efforts to bring shame, humiliation, embarrassment, devastation, and destruction only ends up doing the opposite. Instant glory for the Father and for the Son. What was supposed to be instantly humiliating, instead immediately exalts. A symbol of defeat becomes a symbol of victory. A blemish becomes a trophy. A cross becomes a crown. I mean, you think about us as a peculiar people, right? We wear around our necks, we put up on our walls the tool of execution for our master. That's what we put up. We don't have empty tombs on our walls. We don't have golden thrones, heavenly thrones around our necks. We don't have scepters that righteously rule as Christ is king. We have, we have a cross as our symbol. We're a most peculiar people. You wonder why. Like that was an attempt to defeat, and it's, and it's defeated in itself, and yet that's the thing that we hold on to. That's the thing that we talk about. Why do we do that? That's because we're, we're biblical, and we understand the significance of the cross. In the good old King James in Galatians 6, 14, it says this verse like this, but God forbid that I should glory. Every other translation that's newer says, says boast, but I wanted to, to read the King James says glory. God forbid that I should glory, save meaning in anything else but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. I don't have any boasting. I don't take glory in anything else, Paul says, but the cross. Because the cross frees me from the world and removes the world's tentacles off of me. That's what the cross does. I glory in it. The same cross that Jesus says will bring him glory. God will be glorified. He must be glorified. Everything he does is glorious. The ignominious death of his son on a cross, a criminal's cross. Even that is glory. So Jesus talks about the glory. Don't worry, my beloved disciples. This moment is not the end. This moment is not something to be feared. Though I am troubled in my spirit, this is all for glory. But I am leaving. He says in verse 33, little children, yet a little, little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, little children, is it, we should see that and pause. That's the Greek word technia. It's used only here in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the only time it's ever used. But somebody else uses this same word seven times. It's the same Apostle John. In his letter, 1 John, he uses it seven times. Little children, a term of endearment. Jesus is saying, even though you remain quite spiritually immature, you are very dear to me. Even though you didn't get it at all, what I was doing when I was washing your feet and nobody got up to do it themselves, even though you have no clue that a betrayer is in your midst and that that's going to be kind of scary for you, you are dear to me. Little children. He says, not only will I be glorified, but I'll also be gone. See, in the upper room discourse, Jesus is going to keep explaining this, especially in the farewell discourse, that inside peace. He's going to keep explaining it. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to physically be gone. I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be executed, die, but I'm going to rise again, not stay dead, but I'm also not going to stay here. I mean, you think about the poor disciples this is difficult to process. It'll be difficult to process for anyone. Wait a minute. You're going to be betrayed. How could that happen? You're going to die? How could that possibly happen? Peter says, never will that happen. Okay, well, we're finally accepting, okay, you're going to die, and you're going to be betrayed to do it, but you're going to rise again. Okay, you're going to rise again, but then you're not going to be here? 
That's what chapter 14 is going to be about for the first half. Where are you going to be? What, what, what is this going on? We've got to sympathize with these, these brothers. And he has said it before. Like he says in verse 33, just as I say to the Jews, now I also say to you. Do you remember the Jews? He said that to them in John 7 and John 8. In John 7, 34, he said to the Jews, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, meaning the Jews that have scattered all over the world? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? And John 8, 21, says it again, and he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? And he says it to his disciples now. Now we know that they're different than those unbelieving Jews because verse 36 tells us that you're going to come afterwards. You can't come now, but you will come later where I am. So it's different for them, but he's preparing them. Jesus is preparing these 11 for the plight of every Christian. We meet Jesus. We repent and believe that he is the one true son of God and we turn from our sin. But he's glorified on the throne and not here with us now. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we live as subjects of a king who is not visibly present enforcing his perfect law on everyone? How, how do we live as subjects of a king who's ruling in absentia? What do we do? That's what he's telling his disciples, and that's what we have to figure out as well. How do we live in a sinful world that murdered Christ without the physical presence of Christ? A world that doesn't recognize him as the son of God. A world that does not recognize him as king. Does not bow the knee, does not submit to him. Jesus is about to answer that question for his men, for his church, for all time. In the next two verses. These are the marching orders for the disciples. They're told this is all for the glory of God and me. I'm not going to be here, but here's what you do while I'm not here. Here's how you live. Here's the overarching rule for how you live while I'm gone. He says in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So follow Jesus' monologue here. Judas leaves. I am now glorified, and so is the Father. I'm about to leave you, and you can't come here's a new command for you to obey in my absence. I mean, you see how quickly he's just cutting down to the point? I mean, we've, we've had long discourses of Jesus before, and he, he does this long section of the, of the foot washing to give an example and to show him that kind of thing, and then a long discussion about the betrayal and all that stuff, and now he just cuts straight to the point, down to brass tacks. The clock is ticking. He is going to die soon this is an officer giving troops the mission in his absence the most critical the most important the highest priority assignment and what is it what is it from this commander to his troops love each other just as i have loved each one of you that's the commandment that's the mission critical he says it's a new commandment, but is it a new commandment? Or in what ways is it a new commandment? It's certainly not new. Loving your neighbor is not new. Leviticus 19, 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's, that's 1,400, 1,500 years before Jesus. So that's, this is an old commandment. But then Jesus also himself, months, maybe a year before this, moment in the upper room he says in matthew 22 36 through 40 somebody asks him teacher what is the greatest commandment in the law and jesus said to him you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind this is the great and first commandment and a second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets so jesus has talked about this before so what's the new part what makes it new this old commandment. Here's what makes it new, is that Jesus is now the embodied standard 
of what it looks like to love your neighbor. That's the new part, because he says, just as I have loved you. These men spent three years, 24-7, almost 24-7 with Jesus. They have the standard stamped on their heart of what this kind of love is. How did Jesus love the disciples? Don't just think of love. This is the trouble that we live in in our day. Nothing is more exalted, yet more misunderstood and misconstrued than the word and the concept love. We think that there's different kinds of love. We think that love is just doing whatever you want. We think that loving is just affirming in me whatever I want and whatever I am. We have inane sayings bandied about like love is love. Dog is dog. Cat is cat. What does that even mean? You can't define a word with the word. But yet we do it, and all you need is love. That curse is still following us since the Beatles died years ago. But we need to know what is love. How did Jesus love the disciples? How did he do it? He chose them. None of them came to Jesus. He all went to them. He taught them. Right? What does he do? He spends time teaching them. When he gives parables and the disciples are like, we don't get it at all. He sits them down and he teaches them. He rebuked them. Jesus says to his beloved Peter, get behind me, Satan. Right after he professes him to be the son of God. He included them. They're in all of these miracles. He takes them into rooms where he's going to heal people. He brings them around. He goes into their homes. He includes them. He gave all of his time to them. Now, that may be one of the biggest emphases or evidences of love is you're giving time to them. Anybody else need time to yourself? No, I got to have some alone time. Jesus, we can count on our one on one hand in the Gospels, his alone time. Mark 1, the, the, the mountain on the side of the, of the sea when the storm is happening down below, when he's in the boat asleep on a different storm on the boat. Other than that, he doesn't really take that much alone time ever. He's giving himself to them over and over all day long to their questions and to their, their pettiness. Jesus, who's going to be the coolest one in heaven? He just keeps putting up with it. He just keeps giving more time because he's patient with them. That's the first description we read in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is what? Patient. Jesus is so unendingly patient with his disciples. He shows that to them. He had high standards for them, right? You, you need to continue to grow. How long will you not get this? You of little faith. Calling them higher, challenging them. That's how he loved them. He told them the truth. Didn't lie to them, didn't sugarcoat anything to them. He told them the truth. He prepared them for suffering, as we'll see particularly in John 15. And then lastly, he gave his life for them. He gave his life relationally and physically. We always think about the physically, and we should because that is the greatest. But you know what we're also and when I when I'm counseling young men who want to get married, they're all ready to take a bullet for their for their fiance or for their, their wife if they're now married. But I tell them, I was like, how many people are shooting at your wife? Get up and do the dishes. I mean, or, or, or sit and listen. I mean, those kind of relational things. We're all ready to die for that's a big showy thing and they'll make a movie about me one day. But are you ready to do what Jesus did for three years be with these guys who almost never get it and keep making the same mistakes? That's, that's how he loved them. So if that's the standard, that's what they're to follow, then Jesus gives. This is what the, the Westminster divines always attached in the shorter catechism to a commandment. What's the command and what's annexed to it? What's the reason annexed to the command talking about the ten commandments but here we have jesus annexing a reason to this new command he says in 35 by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another that's the reason annexed to the command the new command of verse 34 Loving each other, Jesus says, like I loved you, that will be your loudest public witness 
to the world. Out of the mouth of Jesus, the result of obedience to this new command is that it will run the flag of your identification with him up on the highest flagpole for everyone to see. That's what it'll do. Consider the context of where we are. This is Jesus's final hours before the cross. He's at the table with the men he's poured his life into, invested in the most. The traitor has left. The mood is different. It's become more urgent. The clock is ticking. The time for marching orders. What is mission critical? That's all that needs to be said from here on out because he's not going to get to have any more conversations with them after this. And what does Jesus command? What was the most preeminent thing that his disciples had to know, had to know before he dies? The first thing out of his mouth before he dies, or before he continues to explain in the farewell discourse, what was emphasized? It was this, love other Christians, one another, love other Christians the way I love you because that will be your most effective public witness for me. That's how people will know. The question is, do we really believe Jesus in this verse? Do we believe it? You take a quick survey of church history and pop Christianity, and the answer is no. We do not believe verse 35. Not at all. I mean, where else would we get the notion that what we do on Sunday is hiding from the world? Or what we're doing in here is some kind of holy huddle? Where would we get that notion if, unless we didn't believe verse 35? Who are we hiding from in here? Who is not welcome in a fellowship of believers? This isn't a secret meeting and we're not a secret society. Everybody knows what happens on Sunday morning in the United States. Don't know that. We will tell them by our words or by our actions. Either, oh, hey, I can't go to that thing. I'm going to church on Sunday morning. I can't be there. Or, hey, no, I, I got to cancel on you because we have church. I didn't know it went all the way to Sunday morning. I got to be there. I'll tell you that. Or they'll just see it. Where are our cars on Sunday morning? They're out there in the parking lot. They're not in our driveway. They're not in our garage. They're not on the golf course. They're not at the movie theater. We'll tell them. We're not hiding from anyone. Jesus didn't say, by serving in a food kitchen, people will know that you are my disciples. He didn't say, by integrating into the public schools, people will know that you are my disciples. By, by working to redeem the arts culture, people will know that you are my disciples. By skipping church to do a service project, people will know that you are my disciples. He didn't say that. Jesus had one death to die. He had one night before that death, one chance to give final instructions to his disciples before he left them physically, and the highest priority for them was this. Love other disciples of mine like I do because that will make you the most effective with the lost. That's what he said. We are the most effective missionally because not because of what we do outside the church, but because of what we do inside the church. According to the words of Jesus. We're most effective for what we do inside, not because of what we do outside. Of course, it's not saying that we don't do anything outside, but we're honing in on the tone of Jesus this morning. Jesus is commanding the disciples and thus us to be a compelling community. That's what he's calling us to be, a compelling community. In God's sovereign plan, he designed, he designated the church bodies loving interaction to be his chief chief method of kingdom expansion. You see that? In his sovereign plan, he designed that his most effective way to expand his kingdom was going to be our love for each other. That's what he designed. That's what he planned. The community that we foster 
that becomes our evangelistic engine. Our love for each other, that's what makes us compelling to outsiders. See, we get this in every other organization in the world except for the church. Now, I went to Texas A&M, which is largely called a cult around the country. Now, why is it called that? Why do people go there? Why, why does this hunk of gold mean anything to anyone? Who cares about your class ring? Nobody but Aggies. Why? Why, why is it, oh, just go to a game. All you got to do is go to a game. Go to one game, and then you'll be hooked. Why? Because at that game, arms are going to be put around you, and you're going to sway back and forth, damaging the structural integrity of this concrete stadium. Why is it that when you go there that you get a shirt and people just say woof and they say howdy when they see you? And when they see the sticker on your car, they honk at you. Or that when you sit in an interview with a CEO who has a ring and you have a ring, you get a job. It doesn't matter if you can spell, read, or write. Why is that? The compelling community. Why do we believe that we're going to win a national championship when it hasn't happened since 1939, pre-World War II? Always happens when you go there. Why? Because all A&M cares about is A&M. That's all they care about. And then what does it do? It sucks everybody in. It sucks in 50,000 18 to 22-year-olds every year because they care about A&M, and it brings everybody in. And then now everybody's like, well, what's going on over there? I mean, this place is crazy. It's so weird. I mean, when you go to a game, they're oh, man, I hated it. But also, they were treating me nicely. Well, you have all these things, and you go on and on and on. And if we get that for something as silly and temporal as a college, mostly just college sports, mostly just mediocre college sports, then why are we missing it when Jesus says it to us as the church? Because everybody at AM has said, yeah, get in, get the grades and get in. And you can be a part of this crazy big family that's awesome and cool. And what are we saying as the church? Repent and accept Christ and come in. And then you'll have all of this. And everywhere you go, you'll meet people who are Christians who have also been bought by the blood of Christ. And they will love you and they will care for you. They will be there for you. This is a compelling community. This is how J.C. Rao describes it. He said, there is nothing that the world understands and values more than true love. The very men who cannot comprehend doctrine and know nothing of theology can appreciate love. It arrests their attention and makes them think. And that's what we do before we can explain to anyone the biblical theology of Genesis to Revelation. Before we can they can understand substitutionary atonement and total depravity and unconditional election, what can they understand? They love each other. There's nobody in their midst that has a need. Tertullian was a second century Christian, and he wrote uh, some historical pieces, and he said, this is how the Roman Empire looked at the church that it hated so much. I, we don't get it. None of them have any need. They always take care of each other, and they're all ready to die for each other. Nobody else is like that. No other cult of the pantheon of Roman gods takes care of people like that. That was an identifying mark of the church. The reverse, though, we must see and hear a warning. By this people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, what if you don't? We have to hear the reverse of it because John himself, who wrote these words, wrote in 1 John 3.10, By this it is evident who are the children of God. It's evident we know who the children of God are and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Lack of love for brothers and sisters in Christ is an indication that you are a child of the devil according to the Gospel of John. And in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Not should work on loving his brother, must, meaning if he doesn't, he is not God. 
If it's easy for someone to stay away from the people of God, from the other disciples of Christ, if that's easy and not a big deal and nothing to worry about, then what confidence can we have that they know the redeeming love of Christ? Because Jesus says that all people, meaning everybody outside the church, will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Yet if you refuse and are to be around them, and you're never regularly seen with them so that all people can observe that about you, then what confidence can we have? How can they know? If one is indifferent, indifferent, truly doesn't care either way about being loved by Jesus' disciples and then loving Jesus' disciples, then they aren't a disciple themselves. We have to hear the full weight of John's words and Jesus' words. We, we have to regain the commitment to gather, to be together, to force ourselves, to discipline ourselves, to be with one another. We cannot love from a distance. Nobody says, my dad loves me, but he's never around me. No kid has ever said that. That's not in a military family or not in some kind of medical condition. We have to be together. We can't let COVID and we can't let live streaming be the jackhammers of Satan to fracture our fellowship. We must fight to be together because we love one another. Anything that Jesus commands, he has to command it, command it because we're not predisposed to do it. We have to fight for it. Anything that we do in the Christian life is not going to be easy. Everything is going to be chirping for our time. And you could talk about bank accounts and where you give your money all day long, but I'd much rather see your time. You lay out your time and where you give it, that will show what you love the most. That will show what you're committed to the most. We love each other because Christ first loved us. And since we're so aware of our own unworthiness of love, receiving the love of Christ, we're just beggars who've been given bread and we're running around to other beggars and saying, look, here's bread. And here's where you get it from him. And we are all beggars together. We just keep going back and getting bread from the same guy. That's all that we're doing. The truth is, and this is me preaching to myself, which is why I had to write it down like this. The truth is that we may have precise doctrine. We may have precise or pristine theology, a high view of God's word, but that will be unconvincing to unbelievers if we have no love for each other. Not that doctrine doesn't matter or theology doesn't matter. It is of supreme importance. But you can have that. You can have the right doctrinal statement, the right confession of faith, listen to all the right preachers, read all the right books, and be dead and have no love for one another. And that means that we are unconvincing to a watching world. But let's even get more serious about what Jesus says and from the words of Francis Schaeffer. He wrote a book, whole book on this topic, but this quote I wanted to pull out for us because it just is so uh, street-level. If you don't know who Francis Schaeffer is, it's worth looking up. He had a huge ministry to disenfranchised hippies in Europe at this place called Labrie where they would come and live, and he would help them deconstruct all the postmodern nonsense that they dealt with. Had a huge impact in the United States as well. But anyways, he wrote, and he said this. Jesus turns to the world and says, I've got something to say to you. On the basis of my authority, I give you a right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love he shows to all Christians. I thought that was just Jesus turning to the world, the lost, the unbelieving, those who hate him, and says, I'm giving you a right. You can go and now look at everybody who claims to be mine, and if they don't love each other, then you don't affirm them as a Christian. And that's powerful. Brothers and sisters, let's all agree that we cannot obey this command of Christ if we are not gathering together. We have to be together to love each other. You can't love someone and refuse to physically be around them. So let's commit to the compelling community that we are compelling to the lost. We compel them to come in, as Jesus says in that famous parable. When they see us, 
we tell everybody when we're meeting. Our doors are open. They're kind of locked right now, but we have somebody watching the door to unlock it, to let them in if they come. But we have a compelling community to be here. So you got to plan to be here. You got to arrange your soul around it to be here, to be at Bible studies, to be at small groups. Recognize what's at stake. We have to do that. We have to intend to love others in the church like Christ loves you. And what did Jesus let get in the way of him getting to you? Nothing. He took everything. That's what makes Philippians 2, 5 through 11 so powerful, so overwhelming. When did he say enough when it came to loving you? He never, ever got there. For even the Son of Man came to be came to serve and not to be served and to give his life he never said okay that's the rubicon i'm not crossing there all the way to death even death on a cross so we do that to others so that means that we here in this compelling community you got to meet people you don't know i can't be the only one that knows everybody in here we got to meet people you don't know you got to take an interest in their lives and you got to be ready to serve when the opportunity jumps up I'm talking to myself as well that's what we have to do to contain or to, to remain and to grow and as a compelling community. Now, here's what I want to do, though. I want to end bragging on you to you. So as pastor, I get to do a lot of membership interviews, and I love it. I love getting to hear people's stories and where they're from and, and how Christ saved them, what he's done in their lives. I love that. Absolutely love it. And in a dozen or so that I've done since being here, let me tell you what happened time and time again in those interviews. So people would say, yeah, we came, and you know, we were maybe a little wary, and we meet in a strip center, and it's a little different, and uh, you know, there's not great parking, and you know, all those kinds of things, but man, when we walked in the door, everybody said hi to us. Everybody welcomed us. People introduced themselves to me, and, and then they, they, they ushered me around, and people said, hey, I don't know if I recognize you. And, and I, we've gone to other churches, and, and they've been great, great preaching, great music, great facilities, all those things, but we just didn't, nobody said, nobody welcomed us. Nobody, no, 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 it didn't feel that warm. People were, people were cordial, but there was just something different. And I've heard that time and time again. The dozen or so interviews that I've been able to do since being here. See, you can always find better preachers, better programs, certainly better parking lots, and better coffee. Not that ours is bad. But it's rare to find John 13, 34, and 35. It's rare to find that compelling community. See, what my bad preaching in our terrible parking lot by being the compelling community loving one another as Christ loved you and who knows maybe over time my preaching will get better and we might get a different parking lot but still none of that's going to fix it it's do you love one another as Christ loved you that is how everybody outside here is going to know we think that what we're doing in here is just for us but Jesus says it's not it's for you and for them, for them to come in and say, I've never experienced anything like this. That's what they'll see, and that's what Jesus has called us to. So we're going to stop there because I didn't want Peter to get in the way. He's going to mess it up in like three verses. So we're stopping there. We'll pick up with him next week. But let me pray for us. Father, we are, we are challenged a passage like this. We know we can't meet this standard. We can't love each other like Jesus loves us. You're calling us to it, and you're pointing to us a standard. And if we can't meet it, then that would mean the book is not divinely inspired and that Jesus is not God. So we thank you for that high, high standard. And we thank you for not giving us this kind of command, but then not equipping us to do it at all. You gave us four different accounts four different camera angles on your son's life as he walked on this earth to be able to see and to know how we do this. How do we love each other? 
So we thank you for that. And then you didn't just give us an instruction manual. You indwelt us with your very spirit that Jesus will call his own spirit who mightily works within us, as Paul says in Colossians 1, 28. Father, we, we are so, we're enlivened by this because we all want this. Well, we all want to, to be loved. We all want to have people to love. We want people to be patient with us. So that drives us to be patient with them. We all want people to endure with us and to forgive us. So we endure with others and we forgive them because we know that we've been forgiven an Everest level of sin. Well, we want this kind of community. We want to be a compelling community. We want to be easily convictable as your disciples by a lost and dying world. And we pray that it is compelling for them to come in, that you would use us in that way to, for people to come and for people to be here, not because we're anything special or because we're better than the guys down the street, but because you've commanded us to do this and we, we are here constituted as a church and we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful. We want to fly our flag so high that everyone can see it and that they will know that we are yours and that will bring intrigue into their hearts, that that might be what you use to stir them up, to till the soil of their hearts so that the seed of the gospel might be planted in. So Lord, may we be a gospel-exalting, a gospel-preaching people, and may we be a warm, hugging loving and caring church we desperately want that so guide us in that we want to pray the prayer of David in Psalm 25 make us to know your truth put our way we resign our will we give up our uh, desire and, and our own uh, stick-to-itiveness but just make us to know the truth and to walk in the path of the truth we want that and we want it for your glory. And we want to see you glorified more. You will be glorified and you have been glorified. You glorified yourself with Satan's best attempt to shame you, to embarrass or humiliate you. And so you can certainly do that with us, the family of the redeemed, those chosen seed of Abraham. Because if we are Christ's, then we are Abraham's seed. And if we're Abraham's seed, then we are the recipients of the covenant promise. And you are faithful to keep your promise. And we want to see your tenth expanded. We want to see that happen in your timing and by your methods. So help us to be faithful to do this one commandment above all things that you would see us as having our fellowship marked, our conversations toned by love, the love of Christ. And we ask this all expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen.